I expect you wouldn't be surprised if I told you that you were living in a finely tuned world, what with humanity's carefully crafted technical and logistical designs and all. Indeed, the existence of this fine-tuning is made all the more evident in recent times, as disease and war disrupt the fragile balance in the world's supply chains and economies. But what does it mean for something to be fine-tuned? Does fine-tuning extend beyond our own man-made systems and into biology and the universe itself? And if so, what or who has done the tuning? This week, we're joined by Dr. Daniel Diaz and Dr. Ola Hershier to answer these questions and more on Mind Matters News. Greetings, I'm your pronounced host, Robert J. Marks, on this podcast of Mind Matters News. Today on Mind Matters News, on the podcast, we're going to talk about fine-tuning. Scientists know the universe is finely tuned. Uh, For example, take the atheist, pronounced atheist, Sir Fred Hoyle. Hoyle was a great astronomer, maybe known best for his coining of the term Big Bang to describe the beginning of the universe. Hoyle did not at first believe the universe had a beginning and coined the term in a mocking way, uh, mocking the theory of the beginning of the universe. He didn't like it, so he tried to make fun of it. But nevertheless, Hoyle's term, his mocking term, stuck, and today we refer to the beginning of the universe as physicists talk about it as the Big Bang. Uh, Hoyle was also convinced, despite his beliefs, that the science of the universe dictated that it had to be fine-tuned. In fact, most scientists knew there's little controversy that the universe, in terms of biology, chemistry, and the cosmos, is fine-tuned. Hoyle said the following about fine-tuning. He said, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. I love that word, monkeyed with physics. A super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. This monkeying with physics, chemistry, and biology is the topic today on Mind Matters News. We have two guests who have published extensively in the literature about fine-tuning. Dr. Ola Herscher is a mathematics professor, actually mathematical statistics professor at Stockholm University in Sweden, and he joins us from Sweden. Ola, welcome. Uh, Thanks a lot, Bob, for inviting me to your podcast. Thanks a lot. We're going to have fun. And our second guest is Dr. Daniel Diaz. He's a research assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Miami. Daniel, welcome to you too. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I, I tell you, what, what's what's incredible about this podcast is that currently Ola is in Sweden and Daniel is in Colombia. He makes his living at the University of Miami, but his home country is in Colombia and he goes home there occasionally. So we're having this podcast across three different continents. That That blows my mind. I'm an electrical engineer and every time I hear something like it, that, I say, all these electrical engineers, what incredible things that they can do. Uh, I have to warn the listeners that both of these guys are wickedly smart, so you better listen, you better listen closely. So let's start in, let's start in with the chat, with the dialogue. Uh, Fred Hoyle has already defined tuning. He says the universe looks monkeyed with to allow life. Uh, now, he's not the only one. Uh, Hoyle's one among many physicists who see fine-tuning in the cosmos. The famous physicist Freeman Dyson said, the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we are coming. Now, 
the interesting thing about the fine-tuning universe is there are different ways to measure to measure the fine-tuning of the universe, to put numbers to it that make sense to us. And the three of us, um, Ola, Daniel, and I, kind of agreed on a list of different ways that fine-tuning can be measured. And we want to kind of go through these and discuss each one in turn. The first one is something called active information. Now, Daniel has, has published quite a bit in terms of active information. Daniel, could you give us a definition of active information and explain why it can be used as a measure of fine-tuning? Okay, yes, Bob. So uh, let me start with the, how active information was born as a concept in the scientific literature. And maybe to do that, it is better to talk first about the no-free-launch theorems. This is, uh, these are actually very famous results in evolutionary algorithms and in computer science and machine learning. And this theorem, the no-free-launch theorems, say that in a big space, you can think of it as if you were shooting to some small target in a big wall. Uh, if you start looking at that target at random, then you're not going to do better than in a, in a blind search. That is, you can have your target in different parts, maybe, of the, of the big wall. And when you're looking for it with any algorithm, on average, you're not going to do better than a uniform search or a blind search. So active information was introduced in order to measure the amount of information that the algorithm is infusing in order to get to a target with a probability better than just that given by a blind search. Yeah, the no free lunch theorem basically says, as I understand, that you have no beforehand knowledge of any domain expertise of finding the target. So you have nothing that nothing that guides you. And if you have nothing that guides you, I would say the no free lunch theorem says that one technique can be used uh, to find the target as well as any other technique, right? Yep. Okay, so that, that's a fair way to say it. Um, one of the examples I, I think about is Formula 409. Ola, do you have Formula 409 in Sweden? No, I haven't heard of it, actually. It's, uh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. It's kind of a bathroom cleaner in a spray bottle. And the reason they call it Formula 409, it's very, very popular in the United States. And how about Colombia? Do they have it down there? Nope, I haven't heard about it. Okay. The reason it's popular, it works really, really well. But it's called Formula 409 because it took 409 efforts to create Formula 409. Oh. Uh -huh. 409 experiments before they got the, the final solution perfected, at least oh. to the point where they thought it was commercially viable. Uh, so the thing is, is that these trials were done by somebody with a background in chemistry. And so you had this domain expertise that went in. Now, imagine that you went in and you had no knowledge about what was happening. You didn't know anything about chemistry. You didn't know about anything. You know, vinegar might work as well as water, as sulfuric acid in, in, in doing these things. If somebody came out with no domain expertise, no background in chemistry, it would, we would be calling that formula uh, 5,623,000 or something like that, because the, the domain expertise simplifies things. But the no free lunch theorem, is, as I understand it, pre-assumes that there's, that there's no a priori information. And that's, that, that's a very important uh, distinction. 
So, okay, Daniel. Okay, so that's good. How did I do? Great. You did great. So let me compliment that because your question actually, what it was the relation of active information to fine tuning? Yes. And I, I want to compliment that point. You're saying that just as in this example of the big wall, let's call it this big wall is going to be called formally a space and the small target is just similar to what, to what is happening in, cosmolo in cosmological fine tuning. Cosmological fine tuning says that actually the laws of nature and the constants in the standard models of physics must live in very small intervals such that life can exist. And those intervals actually need to have small probability too. So the point here is that there is an easy uh, analogy in mind that comes from the small target in the big wall to the small interval among all the set of possible numbers that the uh, constant can take. So there is this relation between fine-tuning and search problems. They look for targets in uh, computational science, in computer science. And with that analogy in mind, we can use some tools of uh, search problems like active information in order to measure also fine-tuning. And you get, a, you get a number there. What's the number that you get out of active information? You get actually a, a numerical measure, right? Yeah, yes, we have some numerical measures, but I mean, those numbers are going to change in different settings and different strategies for different values that you're also considering. Okay, I think that the units for active information is bits. Is that right? Oh, oh, oh! So you're meaning you're meaning the the units in which it is measured? Yeah, it is it is measured usually in bits, just like we do usually for computation and two. We do the same in 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 general for for measuring active information in any setting. So the units are not important. You know, it is like measuring length in terms of kilometers or or miles. You can make easy conversions from one to the other, and you can, for instance, change from bits to something that is called nats, which is a different way of measuring information. But in the end, the important thing is that from the beginning, you are clear on what is the measuring that you're using and keep it constant along the whole process. Okay. One of the things that you mentioned, Daniel, is this idea of uh, intervals. And I know that Ola and, uh, and you and I have done work on uh, not just talking about the interval of fine tuning, but the probability, the a probability measure of fine tuning, and the difference between them, and why one is the better. Oli, could you talk about that? Yes, yes, uh, uh, and that's a very good question because we have like we have some process that generates outcomes, and for it could be the generation of uh, generating the universe by some mechanism or it could be also in biology generating a, a protein by some evolutionary algorithm or something. And as you said, we, we have a target that could consist of a certain region or a certain interval within this overall space of possible outcomes. And as Daniel said, when, it, when we talk about uh, the origin of the universe and a, look at a particular constant of nature, it's only a very small life-permitting interval for that uh, constant of nature that corresponds to a universe that admits life. So, 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 so in that case, we could say that this small life-permitting interval, as Daniel said, is the target of this process that generated our universe. And then, uh, so we have a small interval, and then we would say, what is the probability 
that this this process of generating this uh, constant of nature what is the probability of that if we think of this process as, ra- as random in some way what is the probability that this constant of nature falls within the life permitting interval and then we intuitively we think that a smaller life permitting interval would correspond to a small probability of ending up there whereas a large life permitting interval would correspond to a large probability of ending up there but you you've shown that this isn't true right uh, not not necessarily and because it depends on uh, the various possibilities of this random outcome of generating the universe and that's called the statistical distribution of that constant of nature that comes out from this how how this how the universe and in particular this constant of nature how how it was generated so it could in principle it could be the case that the distribution is completely within this small life permitting interval uh, and 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 then the probability would be one of of ha- of, of ending up uh, with a life permitting uh, universe as as at least when you talk about this particular constant of nature and in the same way it could be the case that we have a very large life permitting interval but this distribution is completely outside of it and then still the probability is zero but 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 these are like exceptions so in our paper we have a sort of general way of choosing this distribution of the value of the constant of nature which is sort of outside of the universe so how it was constructed we have very little knowledge about it so we use maximum ignorance or maximal entropy and and so so that sort of gave us a clue which distribution to choose for this constant of nature and then it's typically the case that a small interval gives a small probability and a large interval gives a large probability and actually we 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 have some freedom of choice of choosing this distribution so we actually take the large we, we are quite conservative so we take the largest possible probability of ending up in this life permitting interval and if it's still small then we can uh, say with more confidence that yes this uh, universe is is fine-tuned with respect to this constant of nature so a question is you use the term maximum entropy i think most people are familiar with the idea of maximum entropy associated with thermodynamics and i think there's a relationship here but as a statistician you use the term maximum entropy in well, kind of a different context and a more of a mathematical context. Is that right? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, yes, that is correct. Because in this, and this is something called Bayesian statistics. So we have a certain parameter, the value of this constant of nature, and and we use a certain prior distribution for 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 that constant of nature. And then there is something we observe: the life permitting interval, or physicists have determined it. That's the likelihood part. Uh, and 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 then the question is in Bayesian statistics: How do we choose this prior information? And and you could choose this in different ways. It could be uh, um, chosen on subjective grounds. Different people choose it differently. Now, would this prior be something like the domain expertise that I talked about? Yes, yes, it could be. Yes. Then, if if you have prior uh, knowledge, then you can use that. If you sort of have previous data, you could use that in order to choose the prior distribution. But if you don't have any 
prior knowledge or prior data whatsoever, then you can sort of let the prior be chosen in such a way that it corresponds to lack of knowledge. And that is maximizing epistemic uncertainty. So it's not like in thermodynamics. When entropy means another thing, the degree of disorder, here it means the degree of lack of knowledge about the value of this, in this case, the constant of nature. So we want to maximize our degree of uncertainty about the value of this constant of nature before we have observed anything. And that means maximizing entropy. And that's a bit more tricky when the uh, when the domain is unbounded. For a bounded domain, it's simply taking a uniform distribution. But we we have a way of to circumvent that. Yeah, that's one of the relationships between the mathematics, mathematical idea of maximum entropy and the thermodynamic. Usually we think of thermodynamics as if you're in a room, then maximum entropy corresponds to all of the velocities of the particles, the distribution being the same at every point in the room. And we can't have the situation where all the molecules accumulate in the upper right-hand corner of the room. They have to be spread uniformly. And that is directly to uh, the idea of maximum entropy that you're talking about in mathematical sense. But also, the way that I relate to this is that maximum entropy is applicable elsewhere in unbounded domains, one of which is the distribution of pressure on Earth from the surface as you go to outer space. Now, it isn't bounded like in a room, but as you go from the surface to outer space, you still have a maximum entropy distribution, but that turns out to be something called an exponential distribution. And that is maximum entropy with those boundary conditions. So those are the sort of things that you're talking about in terms of uh, maximum entropy in different um, in different domains, bounded and unbounded. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so even though we talk about, yes, uh, we talk about... A maximum entropy in terms of maximizing our degree of ignorance, uh, our epistemic uncertainty about the value of this constant. So even though in, uh, when we talk about pressure and things like that, then we talk about sort of a uh, physical system in a slightly different way. It's still amazing that we, you get uh, a distribution that maximizes entropy. Uh, and in this case, yes, as you say, we have an unbounded domain, but the exponential distribution if we to, if we look at all the distributions on the positive real line or a distribution that puts all its probability mass on positive numbers then the exponential distribution maximizes entropy subject to a constraint the side constraint on the expected value of the distribution the first moment so so yeah it's amazing that we can actually uh, uh, have maximum entry distributions in nature in this way, even for unbounded domains. So, that, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it seems to be ubiquitous, doesn't, doesn't it? You mentioned Bayes, and Daniel, I'd like to ask you about this. One of the things about Bayes is, uh, is, is that it's criticized by its a posteriori or after-the-fact probability. Uh, let me illustrate. If you were to apply Bayesian analysis or or after-the-fact analysis, to the probability that the three of us would be here, one in Sweden, one in Colombia, one in Texas, and we've been doing a, doing a podcast. I don't know if it makes a lot of sense to talk about the probability we would be here doing this. So what am I missing here? 
Yeah, so uh, before answering that question, Bob, let me just make an, another comment on the small intervals, small probability and fine-tuning. Yes, please, yes. Because uh, fine-tuning is usually taught in terms of the small interval, life-permitting interval, the, for the given constant of nature. But I think that what we have shown is that actually it is more important as a small probability for the small interval than the length of the interval itself. So that being said, the good definition for fine-tuning basically of an event is just that that event has a very small probability. That is a better definition of fine-tuning than just having a small length interval. Maybe it is more appropriate to, to speak about the small probability of the interval, because in that sense, it does not matter if the interval, as Ola was saying, has a big length or a small length. What is important is the probability that is associated to it. And that's going to be a better definition of fine-tuning, a much more accurate definition of fine-tuning. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've seen some fine-tuning videos, and they say, okay, this, this constant, whatever it is, maybe the speed of light, uh, that if the universe is fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life, let's say this is an inch, and we look at all the other possibilities, then that spatial interval extends from the surface of the Earth to the surface of Jupiter or something like that. And the the, the probability, or not the probability, but the interval for life permitting is a small one. That's really not important is what you're saying is that it isn't that that interval is small. The question is, what is the probability that you exist within that interval? Yes, that's right. And and there's something very interesting about it. Uh, I think Ola also mentioned a little bit about this too. And it is the fact that actually this is this could lead to a reconfiguration of the fine-tuning pro uh, the fine-tuning problem in which sometimes even very very large uh, intervals intervals of a very large length even infinity could actually uh, have a small probability and that happens sometimes in probability uh, you can have some intervals even of infinite length that have a small probability but also wait it, say it, that again you can have intervals of infinite length which have small probabilities. That that yeah. was an important statement. I just wanted to pause there and, and point out and let that sink in a little bit. Go ahead. So let me just give, this is kind of a technical example, but imagine that you your space is the whole real line. And you know then that the distribution you're thinking of has a first finite moment that's going to be the mean. And then it has also a uh, second uh, moment that is finite too, which is uh, saying that it has a variance. Then you know that the maximum entropy distribution for that space is going to be a normal distribution with that mean and that variance that you were thinking of. In that case, you can take, for instance, the interval from minus infinity, I don't know, to uh, minus 10 trillions. And that's going to be an interval of infinite length, but the probability is going to be very, very slow. It is going to be more close to zero than to any other thing, basically, mm -hmm. uh, to put it informally. The, the probability is still going to be positive, but it's going to be so, so small that it is uh, negligible in most cases. So that's a good definition then for fine-tuning. It's the better definition to, to think of the small probability of the event that you are considering than the volume or the length of the event itself. 
Okay, so I, I think the takeaway here is that intervals are okay, are an okay way to measure fine-tuning, but probabilities are much better. Yeah, it's much more accurate. It's better to talk about the probability. Yeah, 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 that's true. And now regarding your second question, or your question about uh, the, the importance of Bayes' theory, or as it is called in statistics, in contrast to frequentist theory, you know, there has been a long, long debate. It's very long debate in, in the history of statistics uh, between these two positions, between frequentist and Bayesianist, as, as you could think of. These are two different approaches to statistics. And the interesting thing is that as far as I'm concerned, I can see many cases in which one of the approaches is better than the other and the opposite is also true. In many cases in which uh, the other approach is better than the previous one. So it depends on the problem that you are working on, that you're going to have some uh, virtues and problems for each of the approaches you are considering. Okay. And, and in fact, both of them have applications. As an engineer, I'm always interested in reduction to practice. And one of the things that Bayesian uh, statistics is used for is something like spam filtering where you gather a lot of emails and you figure out what is the probability that if a Nigerian prince is mentioned <laughs> in the spam, we all remember the, uh, the, the spam about the Nigerian prince trying to get you to give money to this Nigerian prince, and it was a spam and a lot of people fell for it. But you can look at data that occurred in the past and you have the probability that the Nigerian prince, given spam, and you can figure that out. You can look at all of the labeled da- labeled emails and look at all of the ones that have been labeled spam and figure out how many how how many that had Nigerian imprints in them were actually spam. And then Bayes flips that around, and your spam filter figures out the probability it was spam given that it mentioned the Nigerian prince. And so, therefore, it's much more complicated than that. Not more more, more complicated, but. Well, the, the, the spam filter is much more complicated than this, but that's, that's a simple illustration. And this works. And this is the reason we use Bayesian statistics. Now, if you look at an email that has Nigerian prints in it, it's either spam or it isn't. But your Bayesian statistics can say, what is the probability that this email already given, or already sent, already received, what is the probability that it is spam? So it, it does make sense to me. And as an engineer, I always say that reduction to practice is the proof of the validity of a theory. So yes. I think that the criticisms of Bayesian statistics uh, that I mentioned was totally inaccurate. It's not, a, it's, it's not a good argument. Yes, you're right. So it, it all depends on the context that you are, that you are uh, talking of. So as you were mentioning, for spam filtering, uh, a Bayesian approach is very useful it is also useful in some areas of medicine. I work in biostatistics, so I know that uh, in many, many uh, analysis of treatments, patient uh, results are very useful uh, and more useful in some cases than the frequentist approach. But as I say, there are other approaches, uh, there are other problems in which the frequentist approach works better. The important thing for our conversation is that actually uh, the right way, I think, to approach our problem was using Bayesian theory and Bayes' theorem in order to uh, determine what was the distribution of maximum entropy to use. 
So for fine tuning, in order to avoid certain problems that were there in the past, the right approach was to consider that uh, this uh, prior distribution was given in terms of the maximum entropy, and that is using that is also done with the help of the Bayes theorem and Bayesian theory. Yeah, yes, I I I I, I totally agree with that because because of we use Bayesian statistics and and put a prior distribution on the possible values of a certain constant of nature because of the Bayesian statistic approach, not the frequentist approach, we are in fact uh, able to talk about the probability of this interval because we use a Bayesian approach. With a frequentist approach, that would not have been possible. We could only talk about uh, how consistent each possible constant of nature is with data and so on. Excellent. So the frequentist approach talks about probabilities of events which haven't happened yet, whereas Bayesian talks about uh, the probability of events that have already occurred by turning that around. I think that that's an accurate yeah, yes. depiction. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, yes, because in Bayesian statistics, you have probabilities of the past. That is your prior, what you believe about a certain parameter, for instance, a constant of nature, and then what is going to happen. That is the data that you, that you might have not have collected yet. Then you also uh, have a distribution of that also in Bayesian statistics, whereas in frequentist statistics, you only have, you only impose a probability distribution on data uh, for the future, so to speak, not from the past. From the past, you, you regard each possible value of this parameter, each possible value of this constant on nature as a fixed constant. You don't put a distribution on it. Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to bring us back on track. Uh, just to remind what we're doing, we're talking about fine tuning and the ways that fine tuning could be measured. We've gone through uh, the method of active information, measure of measuring of active information, measuring small intervals, and uh, also probabilities of fine tuning existing. Um, the next one I want to ask Daniel about uh, is specified complexity as a measure of the fine-tunedness. Is that the right word? Uh, how well how, how well a process is fine-tuned? Daniel, what, what is specified complexity and how does it measure fine-tuning? Okay, so let me talk about the specified complexity in the context of fine-tuning of uh, our main topic here. So we can think of the life-permitting interval as an interval that is uh, satisfying a very special, or that is fulfilling a very special function. And it is that outside it, life as we know it could have not existed in our universe. So in that sense, that small interval is fulfilling a very important function. It is satisfying a very important function. In that sense, just to put it in very simple terms, we could say that that life-permitting interval is specified. Now, in a specified complexity, there are basically two components, the specification and the complexity. So the specification is given by uh, the function the interval is fulfilling. As I said again, in the interval, inside the interval, if the constant is inside the interval, it is going to allow for a universe to have life. But if it if the constant is outside the interval, then no life could exist in the universe, at least as we know it. We are thinking of carbon-based life here. And that is as much as 
we can say in very simple terms, or we can talk in very simple terms of the specification. On the other side, complexity is more simple to understand. It is, it is simply, you can think of complexity as very small probability. So in very simple terms, you can think of complexity as something that is improbable. So complexity is kind of inversely proportional to, uh, to probability. The more probable an event is, the less complex it is. And also the less probable an event is, the more complex it is. So when we are thinking in terms of fine tuning, then the life permitting interval is specified. So what we need to measure now it is, is its complexity. We need to know if its probability is small and then that is how a specified complexity uh, makes its way in the context of fine-tuning. Okay, excellent. The last topic that we want to talk about is that, that, that measures fine-tuning is so-called irreducible complexity. And how does that measure fine-tuning? Ola, could you talk about that? Yes, yes. And, and uh, this is a nice follow-up of of, of Daniel's nice explanation of specified complexity, because irreducible complexity is a special case, I would say, of, 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 of specified complexity. As Daniel said, specified complexity, then something is complex, it has a small probability of occurring by chance, and there is an independent specification. For instance, a universe that admits life, or in biology, a, a molecular machine that works, and so on. And, and uh, uh, irreducible complexity is a special case when this complexity is like a machine that has many uh, parts to it. And in order for this machine to be uh, specified, in order for it to work, all the parts have to work. So if, if you remove one single part of all these many parts, the machine ceases to function. And that typically makes this machine more complex because as Daniel was saying, complexity is, has an inverse relation to probability. The, the more parts that are all needed we put to this machine, the less likely it is for it, this machine to have evolved by chance. So the summary is that irreducible complexity is a special case of specified complexity when this structure consists of many parts that are all needed. Ola, you co-authored a, a well-received paper entitled Using Statistical Methods to Model the Fine-Tuning of Molecular Machines and Systems. We are going to put a reference to this paper as well as some other papers in the podcast notes for those that are interested in digging deeper. Okay, Using Statistical Methods to Model the Fine-Tuning of Molecular Machines and Systems. I know little about fine-tuning in biology, so you guys are really going to have to help me out. My car is not a molecular machine, but it's a machine, and it has a gas cap that unscrews to give me access to the little pipe that, uh, that goes to my gas tank. And I, it allows me to fill my, my car with gas and then replace it so the gas doesn't get polluted. I suppose I could talk about fine-tuning of the gas cap. You know, the threads for the screws have to be just right. The gas cap can't be too big in diameter because it won't fit in the little hole. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound very compelling insofar as fine-tuning. But I, I suspect, and I, I know from perusing your paper, that fine-tuning in biology is much more sophisticated than that. Uh, Ola, what are some of the more sophisticated examples of fine-tuning in biology? Yes, uh, thanks, Bob. Yes, uh, in uh, in order to talk about fine tuning in biology, we have to go into 
the small things within the cell. And uh, during the first episode, we, we, we sort of talked about different ways of quantifying or defining fine-tuning. And it's closely related to specified complexity that Daniel talked about. And we can say that something is fine-tuned if it's complex, if it's unlikely to occur by chance. And secondly, if there is an independent description or specification of the thing that is fine-tuned. And now we, there are a number of features within the cells that satisfy these two requirements. And the first thing are proteins. Most proteins are sort of all over the cell. And in order for the cell to uh, manufacture proteins, uh, there is an amino acid sequence written on a, in a 20-letter alphabet of amino acids. No, yeah, amino acids, they're the components. I, I'll interrupt when I understand something, <laughs> okay? yeah, yeah. so that I, that I don't look too uh, ignorant. But uh, amino acids, these are the building blocks of DNA, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Well, well, actually, yes. So, so we have the, there is a correspondence between the nucleotides of DNA and amino acids through the genetic code. So, so we can say that uh, from... From, the, from DNA, we have coding that corresponds to a, a, a amino acid sequence. Yes, so that's correct. The amino acids form the building blocks of the protein. And uh, in order for a protein to work, when these uh, amino acids are manufactured in the ribosomes of the cell, uh, this uh, amino acid string has to be folded in a certain complicated three-dimensional structure that is specific for each protein and that is necessary for the protein to work and this is a complex structure because if we look at all possible amino acid sequences of a certain length it could be a, a, a few thousand amino acids that uh, comprise a, 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 a protein uh, what is the fraction of amino acids that give us a uh, working, a functioning three-dimensional protein. And it turns out that it's a very small fraction of amino acid sequences that give us a, a functioning protein. So, so that is uh, the first definition of fine-tuning. It's complex. It is unlikely to happen by chance to get a, a functioning protein. And the second part, we should have an independent specification and, and in this case, the specification is that a protein works. So, 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 so for that reason, a protein is an example of a fine-tuned structure in biology. And then we could get up to the next hierarchical level and look at uh, uh, complexes of proteins, and, and the, like molecular machines. Uh, the ribosome itself, the ribosome is manufactures proteins in the cell. That is itself a sort of a molecular machine that consists of many proteins that have, be, have to be arranged in a certain structure in order for, for it to do its work. Another example is uh, mitochondria in the cell plasma. These are the power stations of the, of, of, of the cell that generate ATP. This is also an example of a molecular machine where all its parts have to be structured in a certain way in order for it to function. And so, so w w one could say, we talked about this during the first episode, uh, a, a specific case or a special case of fine-tuning are irreducibly complex systems. Something is not only complex, but it's complex due to the reason where 
that it consists of many small parts and all parts must function in order for the whole system to work. So if you remove one of the parts in the process you're talking about, the whole thing breaks down. Let me give you a guess uh, as an example. This is on the macroscopic level. Uh, Things such as our lungs, for example, have a bunch of individual cells. And one of these cells has no idea what the other cells are doing. But for some miraculous way, they all work together uh, to allow us to breathe and put oxygen in our blood and other things. Would that be kind of a a big example of what you're talking about? Yes, yes. And another, you you could view uh, the whole cell as a a cellular city, like it has a a network of roads or factories and power stations. You could view a a larger part of the cell as a a network. Uh, So so that consists of many uh, molecular machines or, or protein complexes. Yes. And, and, and these are things which display uh, uh, irreducible complexity. You take away one piece, the whole thing falls apart. Yes, because uh, it's one layer above, it's one hierarchical level above the protein complexes. And if the parts themselves are the protein complexes, the molecular machines that we talked about are irreducible complex, then that will be the case also for on the next level not by definition, but but typically uh, that is the case as well. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, th- thank you. That that's uh, that's fascinating. Daniel, do you have any other examples of fine tuning in, in biology that uh, that you know of? Yeah, there was a paper that we published. Actually, you, Bob, and I published a paper last year on population genetics. Well, let's talk about uh, population genetics before we talk about it. Let's define it. What is population genetics? Well, population genetics try to study how populations evolve in time, usually taking that evolution in terms of uh, genetics. That's how it is. That's why it is called that name. So you're looking at uh, some sequence of, uh, of genes or some gene actually, and then you're looking how it is evolving in time. And trying to infer some properties out of that process. That is basically a stochastic process. Stochastic, by the way. I tell my students if they want to impress people, they say stochastic. If they want to, <laughs> if they don't want to, they say random. So stochastic yeah. is a synonym for random. Okay, so it's a random process. Go ahead. Yes, it's a synonym for random. It is, that, that, that's, that's the formal name that is given to that process in probability theory. So yes, it sounds <laughs> okay. quite impressive, but it just means that it's random over time. So, so, or that it has some randomness at least included over time. It's not necessarily just pure random, but it has some random added to it over time. Uh, so that's the way to think about it. So in population genetics, actually, something that could be studied in terms of fine-tuning, for instance, is the time to fixation of some allele. An allele is just a variation of a gene. Could you say that that was a mutation? Uh, yeah, it's possible to have a, a mutation. And then what you're looking at is the possibility of that uh, mutation to become fixed throughout all the, popul- the population. So once it happens, then you can, you can say that that gene was fixed. That's a kind of a technical name again. So when it, it has spread throughout all the population, and then you can think and you can study the time that it takes for that uh, mutation, for that allele to get fixed in all the population again. That time, 
can be just an example of fine-tuning in biology if the time, for instance, has a small probability again. So we're coming back to the same concept again. We have that now the time to fixation is going to be the specification. But that specification also has some probability of occurrence. Mm -hmm. If the probability is small, again, we can uh, talk of fine-tuning in biology and in particular in population genetics. So that being said, just I'm thinking here that we've been, to we've been talking about specifications and we've been very informal, but just let me mention that even though we are speaking about it here informally, uh, there's a formal definition to it. And actually this is one of the great ideas Ola had, and it is just defining it in very simple terms as a function, in mathematical function, I mean, with some interpretation, usually in reality, that is maximized. Uh, so even though we are talking here in, in very informal terms, I just want to mention that this specification can be formally defined in mathematical terms. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, yeah I want to talk about that next. Um, yeah, Ola, you, you came up with a, a general theory. We, we talk about in physics, for example, a theory of everything. Um, it turns out that fine-tuning is something ubiquitous in our universe. It occurs in biology, chemistry, and physics, and cosmology, the specific area of physics. And the question is, is there a general theory, a general way that we can look at fine-tuning across all of these disciplines? And you've done that. And uh, by something called, let's see, a specificity function, I believe. Could you explain a specificity function as, at, at as high a level as you possibly can uh, so that we can understand what's going on here about your general theory? Yes, yes, uh, Bob. Uh, we introduced this idea in, in, in my joint paper with Stena Thorvaldsen originally, and, and then I have an ongoing project now with uh, Dania where we sort of elaborate on this day idea more. And... We start with a sample space of all the possible outcomes of a certain algorithm. And this could be, in cosmology, this could be the algorithm of generating the universe. Okay, now an algorithm, an algorithm for generating the universe is kind of a, how would you describe that, as a theory or a model of, by which the universe came into creation? Yes, yes. So in, in the previous episode, we talked about the possible values of a certain constant of nature. So this algorithm... If, if the universe was randomly generated, the d different constants of nature could have different possible values with different probabilities. And the sample space is a collection of all possible outputs of the algorithm. In, so in, in cosmology, that would be the, the process of generating a universe. In, in biology, uh, that could be, as Daniel talked about, population genetics, which is really describing small evolutionary changes so so then the outcome could be the outcome of a evolutionary process to generate a protein uh, we talked about proteins as being fine-tuned and it could also be in biology the process of generating and, and that's more challenging a whole protein complex or a molecular machine so 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 that is the first part we need to have a sample space of possible outcomes and then we introduce now comes a specificity function. To each possible outcome of the, in, in this sample space, we assign a value, which is how specified is this particular outcome. And if we go back to uh, cosmology, 
for each possible universe, we could look at a specific constant of nature, and then, then we, we the value of the function will be binary. Either this value of the constant of nature, the outcome, corresponds to a, a, a universe that permits life or not. Or when, when we talk about the protein, we have a certain amino acid sequence that uh, folds to a protein. Uh, so each amino acid sequence is a possible outcome, and, and that uh, outcome either corresponds to a functioning protein or not. And in this case, the specificity function is binary as well. One, if something works, if the protein functions, and zero, if it does not. But then we could also, if we talk about a molecular machine, it, we could also say that the specificity function is whether it works or not, but we could also have uh, more refined, like it could be the number of, of parts it consists of, and so on. And, and, and if we talk about population genetics, if the purpose is to generate various organisms, not only a protein uh, or a protein complex, but a whole organism, uh, or, uh, a population, or, or to generate a species with, with uh, organisms, what is the biological fitness of, of, of each organism? What, and that is, uh, quantifies that organism's reproductive ability, how many offspring it is expected to have. And in this case, that's another example of a specificity function. So, and so that was the second part. The first part was the sample space of all possible outcomes. And the second thing was specificity function. To each possible outcome, you assign a number that tells you how specified that particular outcome was. And then the third part is, I call it a null distribution. And that is, if you think of this an outcome being generated randomly by chance, you have a certain distribution on it. And we talked about in cosmology, uh, the distribution of a certain constant of nature. We could think of a randomly generated amino acid sequence we could talk about a randomly, uh, a random evolutionary process. The purpose of is, which is, or the target is a functioning protein or a molecular machine, and so on. So, so, so now we have these three components: the list of all possible outcomes, the space sample space. We have a specificity function, and we have a null distribution that gives us the distribution of all these possible outcomes. And now we can define what is fine-tuning using these three components. And, and the first is thing we need to, we talked about this in episode one, we need to have a target. Uh, and now the target consists of all the outcomes in this list of outcomes that are specified, that have, have a sufficiently high value of this uh, specificity function above a certain level. And in the case of the universe, it's simply all the possible generated outcomes that permit life for, for a certain constant of nature. So, so uh, that gives us the target, the function uh, or, or, or the subset of all highly specified outcomes. And then uh, because we have, uh, we have constructed a distribution for a randomly generated outcome, we can talk about the probability of ending up in that target. Uh, of, of highly specified outcomes. And if that probability is small, then the system is, uh, is, is finely tuned. And, and that we could apply that for uh, in cosmology. What is the probability of a certain constant of nature ending up in a... And then we call the target a life-permitting interval. We could apply it to, to evolutionary processes for generating 
proteins, what is the probability of that process generating a protein that works or functions, or or uh, we could also talk about an evolutionary process. This is a chance uh, uh, with a certain null distribution. What is the probability of that evolutionary process generating a certain molecular machine, which is irreducibly complex? Uh, so, and, and if that probability is small, then the structure is fine-tuned. Excellent, excellent. You know, one of the things I really like about your theory is including all possible successes. I, I've heard, for example, that if you make a bowl of alphabet soup and the letters arrange themselves and say, good morning, Ola, that that is, that is specified. And you can talk about the probability of that happen by randomly selecting numbers. And that probability is very small. A more meaningful thing to do is to ask, what is the probability of anything which is meaningful coming up and floating in your soup? That's a more important thing. And it sounds like you've done that by looking at all of the possible solutions that are specified. You've looked at all the possible successes. Am I right in that interpretation? Yeah, yeah. We, we, and, and, and that's a sort of a kind of a goal of this project. And I think that's the beauty of mathematics. You have some general abstract objects and you could sort of model things from different areas of applications in a similar way. And, and I think that's an important part of the beauty of mathematics, that seemingly unrelated features in cosmology, in biology, uh, and in uh, algorithmic theory, uh, and so on, they could be modeled in a very similar way using similar concepts. Well, Ola, this, this looks like a landmark paper, and I hope it gets the attention it deserves. Do you perchance know off the top of your head the title of the paper? for people that want to dig deeper? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it's uh, published in the uh, Journal of Theoretical Biology by myself and Steinar Thorvaldsen, and the title is Using Statistical Methods to Model the Fine-Tuning of Molecular Machines and Systems. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, and in this paper, we mostly talk about the biological application, but we also give an historical background because fine-tuning was was first mentioned in the context of physics and cosmology. So we also introduced some of these examples. Okay. Well, excellent, excellent. Yeah, this. Uh, I hope the the paper gets gets the attention it needs. I was, I, I'm in the I'm in the world of artificial intelligence, and I looked up artificial intelligence on Google with quotation marks around it, and put 2020, and just to see how many hits I got. And it was in the millions, and it turns out to be like over two papers per minute, 24-7. Oh. There's no way that people can keep up with the literature. So there's lots of jewels in the mud of the literature that exists out here. And I certainly hope, and hope that your uh, paper kind of floats to the surface as people realize the importance of it. I also know that sometimes papers lie dormant for a while until somebody discovers them and begins championing, championing it and uh, then it becomes more popular. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope that I hope that indeed that happens. Oh, thanks a lot, Bob. Yeah. So really, this is this is really a landmark landmark result. I wanted to talk about the last topic, and this is kind of a general idea too. And it's a paper that um, Daniel Ola and I wrote, and it was about introducing the idea of probability to measure the degree of fine tuning. We talked about this a little. In the prior podcast, if you want the background, you should go back and listen to that. It's really, really great. Uh, Daniel, could you talk about 
how we introduce the idea of probability to measure the degree of fine-tuning. This looks also to be a a universal model that can be applied to a number of different things in biology, chemistry, and cosmology, for example. Yes, Bob, you're right. It is uh, generating a kind of universal setting to work in different areas. Some of the areas were mentioned actually by Ola, and as we have talked, because uh, fine-tuning started in cosmology, now there has been some applications of it to biology, as Ola was mentioning. Actually, there are a couple of papers that appear uh, this year in the literature talking about uh, fine-tuning also in cell membranes. So these are very specific things that are being done in biology. There is also fine-tuning, as we mentioned in the first podcast, on search problems in computer science, that is machine learning. And there is also this very interesting area that has generated a lot of response, positive, negative, among uh, all every possible different view about the simulation hypothesis. And in the simulation hypothesis, there is also required that there's some fine-tuning. Uh, so it's very interesting. It is very interesting. And as we can see, fine-tuning is kind of spreading throughout all the sciences. And there was an important realization that we had in our previous paper when we were uh, finding a way to measure fine-tuning, cosmological fine-tuning, actually. And it was to notice that actually fine-tuning problem, the fine-tuning problem can be divided into two parts, two stages. The first stage is just finding what is the life-permitting interval. And that is basically a physical problem. That is a problem pertaining to the science of physics. And the second problem is determining the size, determining the probability, sorry, of that life-permitting interval. And that is a mathematical problem. So when we realize that, then we could use all the mathematical power in order to find that probability. And that is the realization that I think allows to generalize the whole concept to all areas of science. Because even though the first step is going to be determined uh, by the particular area that is being looked at, so biology, physics, uh, machine learning, whatever, the second stage is going to be a general mathematical theory that can be applied throughout all the sciences. And that is what allows the concept to be generalized. That uh, realization that the probability, that finding the probability is basically a mathematical problem. The way that we do that, 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 that we do it in our paper was then, as Ola mentioned before, by using Bayes' theory and trying and looking for a maximization of entropy that is something that is maximizing our level of ignorance that is using all that we know and then making as random as possible all that we don't know so that we could uh, circumvent previous criticisms that were done to previous attempts also to measure that probability. Let me ask you a question, Daniel, and this will probably come from uh, some different people and I think has been one of the obstacles for developing this general probabilistic theory. We have different cosmological constants, say, for example, the speed of light, but we have no idea of the distribution. We have one statistic, which is currently the speed of light as it exists. How can you take one statistic and figure out, for example, in a model, how much it's spread out 
those with a background or a, a course in statistics, you know that it takes at least two numbers to figure out or estimate the variance, and usually that's pretty bad. So what do you do? How do you take one statistic and milk it for all this probabilistic information? Yeah, so that's precisely what we did in, the, in this previous paper on cosmological fine-tuning on how to measure cosmological fine-tuning. By the way, for the listeners that are inter- who are interested, you can look for the paper. It is titled, Is Cosmological Tuning Fine or Coarse? And it is published in the uh, Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. That's the name of the journal. And uh, what we did in that paper then was realizing that there were some previous problems with the way that probability was considered for those. There is a famous paper that was written almost two decades ago by uh, some philosophers, Timothy McGrew, Lydia McGrew, and Bestrup. And this paper talks about how trying to use uh, the uniform distribution that is trying to constrain, basically, the life-permitting interval to a finite space to a finite set of possible outcomes is not permissible for finding the probability of fine-tuning. So there was this big question that was kind of the origin of our quest for a way to measure this probability. So we realized that if we wanted to do that, we should replace that basic idea that was underlying the the uniform distribution for this problem and generalize it to a more general uh, situation. When we generalize it, or the way to generalize it was using, uh, as Ola mentioned before, the maximum entropy principle. And when we went into that direction and together considered a Bayes theory, then we were able to actually use that life-permitting interval in order to measure that probability without having those previous problems that that uh, previous attempts had when they were measuring the probability. That's great. I, I, I would suggest those of you who are sufficiently nerdy to understand the math to go to the paper and the solution, which I believe was due to Ola, is really ingenious how you can stretch this one statistic into a more general framework by assuming maximum entropy. Yeah, so let me just mention here that two things that we achieved in the paper were first then to uh, solve that previous criticism to the measuring of fine-tuning. That is, that criticism is usually called in the literature the normalization objection. So our, our, our method overcome that criticism. And then Ola's idea also of Bayes theory, using it as background, also overcame some criticism that is usually done to these measurements that is called the weak anthropic principle in which this basically said that we are biased to see a universe as we are seeing because we are here to see it <laughs> and it sounds like a like a puzzle but it has some weight and then the combination of the maximum entropy and Bayes theory solved the two problems in tandem so we were able to solve the normalization objection and to work, to find a way to, to go around the normalization objection and to find a way through the Bayes theory that uh, Ola is so expert working with for the weak anthropic principle. So yeah, we recommend uh, for those that are interested in digging deeper and getting more into the weeds of looking at these two papers, the one that Ola mentioned and the one that Daniel mentioned also, we will post the citation and a link to the paper on the podcast notes so that you can have quick access. (music) 
why is the speed of light the speed of light? Why isn't it slower or faster? Why is the universal gravitational constant what it is? It turns out these and other constants of the cosmos are what they are so that the universe is habitable, so that you and I can live on planet Earth. There is very little controversy that the universe is fine-tuned. Astronomer Robert Jastrow was head of NASA's theoretical division and the founding director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies. He said, it is my view that the universe was created for man to live in. And it's because it's very, very finely tuned by some of these constants that we're talking about. And we talk about fine-tuning of the cosmos today on Mind Matters News. Ola, Daniel, I'm an engineer. When I design something, I want robustness. If I use a resistor of 10 ohms in some sort of circuit and the resistance changes to, say, I don't know, 10 and a half ohms, I want my circuit to still work. But there has to be some wiggle room for small changes in parameters, such as the ohmage. Uh, but eventually, the circuit will break. If the resistance changes to something like a million ohms, my circuit might no longer work. Now, the universe, my example of a resistor in the universe isn't applicable because I don't think we're talking about resistance here, but there's lots of other parameters in the universe as it exists, and uh, that's what we want to talk about. And they, have to, they are fine-tuned, just like, like my 10-ohm resistor, uh, to work well, and there isn't, in some cases, a lot of wiggle room. So, Daniel, let's start with you. Uh, what are some of the constants in cosmology we can look for uh, for fine-tuning? And what would the impact be on the universe if these constants vary too much? Yeah, thank you, Bob, again. So, just let me first mention that that's a very interesting uh, case that I had not considered before, the, the one that you were mentioning for the resistor for fine-tuning. It's a very cool example. And uh, yeah, basically, I think a more general way to define it is also uh, fine-tuning. You can look at fine-tuning for any system to work. Yes. So, for any system to produce the desired outcome, you can just measure the probability, and then you say if you can say if it is fine-tuned or coarsely tuned, whatever it is. So that's a very nice example. In particular, for your question on, on the cosmological fine-tuning, we look at different things when we are considering cosmological fine-tuning. We look first at the laws of nature. Laws of nature, like the most well-known case, the gravitational law. So gravitation has to be in some very small interval so that life can be produced. Now, it is really uh, kind of shooting like a rocket on life. That is more appropriate, even, even though the consequence would be that life exists or does not exist, it's more appropriate even to say that if there is a big fluctuation of gravity, stars uh, would not exist, for instance. Let, 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 let me ask you, what is the gravitational constant? The gravitational constant is just a number that is attached to Newton's gravitational law. Now, that constant was more formally developed after Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity, but it is a nice way just to think about it in terms of what Newton did that is more familiar to all our minds, to all that we know. The basic idea is that there is a constant attached to the gravitational law. And in that gravitational law, that constant is producing some effect. So that is the effect that if the constant were the constant too small, then stars could not be formed. 
And it happens, as it happens, it is in stars that carbon is also formed. So if carbon is not formed, see, if stars are not formed, carbon does not come into existence. And if carbon does not come into existence, we, living beings, we in biology are based on carbon in order to exist, then could have not existed. So uh, that very small number in the gravitational constant would have produced that the stars could not be formed and therefore we would not be here. On the other side, were the constant too large, then everything would have collapsed. Basically, the, the, the gravitational force would be too strong and then everything would be collapsing into one single thing, let's put it like that. I mean, in, in the most extreme case. So in that scenario also, life uh, as we know it could have not existed because it's just it stars could have not existed either. So that's one example in the laws of nature. Okay, here, here's an important question. If the gravitational constant increase and I went to my scales, would I weigh more? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so, right? You will. I mean, yeah, that will be given by the gravitational constant. Yeah, the, the st if we increase the gravitational constant, you know, the, the, the stars would collapse into a singularity. But right now, my immediate thing is whether I would weigh more or not. Because I'm really <laughs> that's, that's a real word for preoccupation, <laughs> you're right. And there are other examples. It's, it is not only fine-tuning in the laws of nature. It also, it also happens in the boundary conditions. For instance, it is assumed that uh, entropy would have to be at a very low value at the beginning of the universe so that, again, life could exist as we know it right now. That is something that belongs to a category that is called uh, boundary conditions. And there is another set also of constants to look as finely tuned, and it is the or the parameters to look as finely tuned. And those are the parameters that come in the standard models in physics. So there is a cosmological and there is a particle standard model in physics. And those models, as any mathematical model, have constants uh, parameters, free parameters, as they call it in physics. Then those parameters also, in general, have to be finely tuned in order for life to exist. Okay, what are some of the other examples of universal uh, constants that we can have interest in? Okay, so uh, other examples, for instance, are the a cosmological constant that Einstein developed with his general theory of relativity. Let, let me ask you about the cosmological constant. I, I know enough to know a little bit about the history that uh, Einstein fudged the cosmological constant to get the results that he wanted and later regretted doing so. Do we have a way of measuring the cosmological constant a lot more accurately today? Yeah, I mean, there is some discrepancy actually between what we are observing, and it's a big discrepancy actually between what we are observing and what uh, it was theoretically uh, predicted. And that's what one of, one of the biggest questions in, in physics right now. One of the most interesting questions in physics right now depends on, 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 on that cosmological constant. But it is very interesting. And uh, some people have pointed this out that even though uh, that cosmological constant was introduced by Einstein in order to correct quotation marks correct, uh, the, the theory that he was developing because it was implying a beginning, 
and he realized that the beginning, I mean, when he realized that it was, the, his theory of relativity was implying a beginning, he tried to correct that because the cosmo, the, the worldview at the time was that the universe was, uh, has existed for an infinite time. Then, actually, uh, he introduced this constant, and he called it uh, the biggest blunder in his life. But yes. as some people have pointed out, even Einstein's mistakes ended up being useful. So that cosmological constant right now is a central topic of cosmology, and a lot of research is happening trying to uh, justify some discrepancies, that big discrepancies, actually, that are observed in the cosmological constant. Okay. So some other constants that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, there is also the uh, primordial fluctuations. This is basically a, a quantum a quantum event. There is something very interesting, actually, about it. It has usually been mentioned that these uh, primordial fluctuations are finely tuned. One of the things that we found in our paper is that for this particular example, the probability is very large. So it might be that subject to a different set of conditions and restrictions, it could end up being fine-tuned. But as we measured, it is not as fine-tuned as basically it was thought before. That's another example, at least of tuning, even if it is not fine, but coarse according to our findings. So in truth, there's a lot of fundamental constants. I, I, I've heard, for example, the um, the electric charge of an electron, oh, for yeah. example. Yeah. The, the, the weak force, the strong force. Oh, man, there, there, there looks to be tens, maybe hundreds of different constants that we can look at and we have to ask our question the question like the speed of light why is this constant equal to this constant and look at the consequences of what would happen if it varied is it a fine-tuned thing or is there a lot of wiggle room there yeah you're right so when you were mentioning the force there are basically four fundamental forces the uh, electromagnetic force the gravitational force the weak and the strong force those are uh, the four big forces and the unification of all those four forces is what is called a theory of everything in physics. Uh, that theory does not exist yet, basically because uh, gravitation uh, is very stubborn and it refuses to be placed in the same category as the others or in the same model, let's say, as the others in, the, in terms of unification. Well, in fact, I think it was Stephen Hawking that gave up pursuing the theory of everything. He didn't do it because of the unification of the different forces, but he, he appealed to Gödel and the fact that no matter what you did, there were going to be stuff that was true in the universe that you still needed to prove. Oh, that's very interesting. Hawking appealing to Gödel. That's very interesting. Uh, so, so what we need in order to discover that the universe is fine-tuned, we don't even need that to, to measure and to see that all the constants are finely tuned. If only one of those is finely tuned, then we can simply say that or deduce that the universe is finely tuned. And that's very interesting because actually what is happening is that if those constants are independent of each other, and that's what is happening in the models, raining physical models right now, is that they have to be assumed as independent. If they are not, then one could be reduced to the other and they could be discarded from the model. So if only one of those is finely tuned, then we can say that the universe is finely tuned too. So are there numerous constants that are finely tuned? There, um, that's our quest, actually, and that's what we want to observe. So what follows in our project is just now that we develop the theoretical way to uh, measure those probabilities, 
is go and measuring those probabilities for the cosmological and particle model. Excellent, excellent. What we expect is to find that some of them, maybe most of them, are going to be finely tuned. But again, if there is only one that is finely tuned, then that would be enough to say that the universe is finely tuned too. Boy, that's that's interesting. But uh, again, Stephen Hawking, I think, speaking of Stephen Hawking, uh, also said that nothing is ever proved in physics. You just accumulate evidence. So if you have one that is not finely tuned, that's evidence. But boy, if you have a bunch of them that are required to be finely tuned, that's really a lot of evidence that something is going on. And as, as Fred Hoyle said, somebody has been monkeying with the universe. So very interesting. Ola, uh, we talk about um, we talk about fine tuning and these cosmological constants. And one of the terms that you use in your papers is an LPI. Uh, what's an LPI? What does it mean? And uh, how do we measure it? Yes, um, and we 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 talked about this during the episodes uh, one and two. And uh, a life LPI that's a life permitting interval for a certain constant of, of nature or a certain cosmological constant. And it could also be a life-permitting interval for a ratio between two constants of nature. And that means that this constant or, this ra- and the, or the ratio of these two constants needs to fall within its life-permitting interval in order for the universe to harbor life. And uh, in episodes one and two, we talked about the universe being fine-tuned, it requires two things. First of all, we need to find this life-permitting interval, and that is, physicists have done that, and that is the independent specification, the life-permitting interval. And then we need to find what would be the probability if the universe was generated by chance, according to some distribution, what would be the probability that this constant of nature or the ratio between two constants of nature ended up within its life-permitting interval. And if that probability is small, then we say that that constant of nature or the ratio between these two constants of nature is fine-tuned. And as Daniel said, it's enough to find one constant of nature that is fine-tuned in order for the universe to be fine-tuned, because then it's also very unlikely that the that universe was generated by chance, one that uh, harbors life. Excellent. We, we talked before about the difference between just looking at the intervals and looking at the probability an event was in that interval. Can you give me some examples of some of the constants of nature and the probability that the event as we see it lies within the life-permitting interval? Yes. And, and in this uh, joint paper of ours uh, is cosmological tuning fine or coarse uh, in the Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics, then we give a couple of examples. And uh, the first example, that's really a ratio of, of two constants of nature. It's a ratio of the constant of gravity that Daniel talked about and Hubble's constant squared. And Hubble's constant is related to a constant that explains how fast the universe is expanding. Now, let me let me ask you this. Why do you take the ratio of constants as opposed to the constants? I mean, couldn't you kind of uh, cook the books by looking at different ratios and seeing that they were fine-tuned? What, what's the reason behind taking these ratios? 
Well, well, sometimes it could be the case that the ratio is more fine-tuned than each of the two constants themselves. It could be that they have to have a certain ratio in order for life to exist in that universe. We can think of it as a balance between different forces. The balance is more important than the actual strength of the two forces, so to speak. I see. So maybe the life-permitting interval for one of these constants would not be as meaningful as with another one because there's an interplay between those two constants. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes the the, the, the life-permitting interval of the ratio could be smaller than the life-permitting intervals of each constant by themselves. And in this case, uh, theoretical physicists have come up with an equation that relates the ratio between the constants of gravity and Hubble's constant squared with the critical density of the universe inverse when the universe was very uh, young. So it's actually the case that that critical density is highly fine-tuned. And, and, and then there are some other constants as well, but this is sort of the important constant uh, that comes up in that equation that says that the critical density of the universe is closely related to the ratio between the constant of gravity and Hubble's constant squared. You know, I, I just thought of thought of an example of um, this in my field, electrical engineering. There's something called a voltage divider, where the percent of a voltage that is bled off is is just a function of the ratio between the two resistors. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, talking about the sensitivity of a single resistor doesn't make sense. You do have to talk about the ratio of two. So it, in talking with you, I just realized that these are problems in, in circuit design also, and I'm sure in other designs. Okay, continue with your example because we want some numbers here. Yeah, yeah. And, and that example, which relates the ratio between the constant of gravity and, and the squared Hubble constant, it relates that to the inverse of the critical density of the universe. That's called the Friedman equation. And uh, Paul Davis, he has actually estimated, uh, uh, one well-known physicist, he has estimated that the relative, the life-permitting interval of that ratio uh, between these two constants of nature has a relative size of 10 to minus 60. And that means this is the length of the interval divided by its uh, midpoints. And it's more meaningful to talk about the relative size because it's dimensionless. It's not dependent on the unit we use to measure, measure the constant of gravity or the Hubble's constant squared. So, so the relative size of the life-permitting interval is 10 to minus 60. We can think of 1% as 10 to minus 2 or 1 per mille to, as 10 to minus 3. So it's extremely small. Now that's the probability, is that right? Oh, no. Uh, well, it, it, it's actually the size of the, of the, the size. But, yeah, yeah, it's a size. And then we have a general way, we talked about that in, in, during episode one and two, that the, then the important thing is not the size per se, and not even the relative size per se, even though it's dimensionless. It's actually the probability that we sign to yes. this life-permitting interval. And then we have, uh, and it actually, def- it, that probability depends a little bit on how we choose the null distribution, the distribution of this, the, the ratio between these two constants of nature. And it can be done in a few slightly different ways, but they all end up with probabilities that are like 74% of, of, of this relative size. So, so if this relative size was 10 to minus 60, the probability is 0.74 times 
10 to minus 60 and and another approach is 50 percent instead of 74 percent but but uh, the take-home message is that the probability is is very close it's of the same order as the relative size of the life permitting interval so the probability you're saying is about one in a million if i remember your well well, well it is it, it, it's one to 10 to 60 so it's much smaller oh my goodness yeah. Yeah, 10 yeah. to the 60th now you know putting that into uh, perspective i i think i've heard that there are 10 to the 80th atoms in the universe and so 10 to the 60th is really really big what is that it's a million you say a million 10 times and you get 10 to the 60th so it's a million 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 it becomes a tongue twister after a while <laughs> yeah, so oh, it's yes. a really really humongous number yeah it is it is so so it's it's really amazingly uh, large and and then we have another closely related example that also gives a highly fine tuned ratio and then we still have the constant of gravity in the numerator of, of that ratio but then we have something called lambda vacuum that is a contribution from vacuum energy to the cosmological constant that daniel talked about and then physicists have come up with very small uh, numbers for that for the relative size of the life permitting interval of that ratio as well the the constant of gravity divided by lambda vacuum and then the relative size uh, depending on the theory used, some authors come up with a relative size of that life permitting interval that is 10 to minus 50 or even 10 to minus 100. Now, that's the interval, not the probability. Yeah, yeah. And then the probability is of the same order as the relative size of the interval. So, so, okay. so, so, and, and it's like uh, half of, of the relative size, the probability, or it's 75% of, 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 of the relative size of the life permitting interval, depending what approach we use for computing the probability. We, we talked about this during episode one and two that we used maximum entropy for the, we chose the prior distribution of the ratio of these two constants according to the maximum entropy principle, but we could do it in different ways. Either we could choose, apply the prior to the ratio itself between these two constants on nature, or we can apply a, a prior to the numerator and denominator specifically. Uh, and But at the end of the day, we come up with very similar numbers for the probability of ending up within this life-permitting interval, which is of the same order as the relative size of this life-permitting interval, which is like in this second example, the constant of gravity divided by lambda vacuum, which was the contribution from vacuum energy to the cosmological constant. Then its relative size was 10 to minus 50 or 10 to minus 100. And that the probability of ending up in that interval is of the same order, regardless of which maximum entropy approach we use for calculating the prior. That's fascinating stuff. Uh, you've pointed out, Ola, some things, some parameters that are very finely tuned. Daniel, are there constants of the cosmos that are not finely tuned? Well, yes. Uh, in our paper, we find uh, two cases. One of those very atypical. I think this was something that Ola also mentioned in one of the previous podcasts. Once we're measuring the ratio of two constants, it is possible for some settings to obtain that the ratio is not going to be that finely tuned. That particularly is going to happen when the average 
is inside the life permitting interval. But uh, then if we take into account that, again, that uh, life permitting interval is very small, then general, we can uh, find a prior distribution for that parameter, the average, the expected value being inside that interval, life permitting interval. Yes. And then and depending on that, it's possible, even though atypical, to find that in some cases that uh, average is going to be inside that life permitting interval. If it is happening, then particularly when the two constants in question are living in the whole real line, so it's not taking only, for instance, positive values, but it could be positive values, negative values, and zero, then in that scenario, it is possible not to have uh, fine-tuning. Do, do you have a specific example? Yeah, yeah. So for the situations that Ola was mentioning, then it is possible just not to think of those constants are living in the positive, in the positive interval, in the positive real line. When we're considering the whole real line, then uh, we could obtain those things. For instance, let me just mention something. I mean, because this is a theoretical example, or this is a theoretical consideration, a mathematical consideration, again, as we mentioned before. So gravity is assumed to be positive so that it is an attraction force. But theoretically, if we are allowing for the constant of gravity to move outside the life-permitting interval, then it is also possible to think of a universe in which there's no attraction force, in which case the gravitation would be the gravitational constant would be zero. So if I went and I went and weighed myself, I would really lose weight, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your weight would be zero. <laughs> I'm obsessed with my weight, so yeah, please go ahead. And it is even theoretically possible once we're moving the value of that constant, which is, in, again, the, the essence of the fine-tuning uh, argument. It is also theoretical, theoretically possible to think of gravity as being negative, in which case it would not be an attraction force, but it would be a repulsion force. So in that case, then the gravitational constant will be living throughout the whole real line. Uh, it could take values throughout the whole real line. And then in that scenario, if, uh, again, the, the expected value, the average, is living inside the life-permitting interval, is found inside the life-permitting interval, it's going to be very difficult to determine that there is fine-tuning. So the tuning would be coarse in that case. Excellent. There is also another possible scenario that we studied. Uh, these are of the two examples that we consider in the paper, we were looking at the gravitational constant and the ratio to other constants in nature, but we also consider the uh, amplitude of the primordial fluctuation. As I mentioned in the previous, in the previous answer, uh, with the, this amplitude of the primordial fluctuations, we did not find that it was finely tuned. Actually, what we found is that it is coarsely tuned. Okay, what, what was that example again? Could, could you be sp specific about the constants involved? Yeah, the amplitude of the primordial fluctuations. So we are taking this constant as standing alone, no ratio or anything. It's just we are looking at it. I see. Okay. And what we found is that actually it, the probability of its life-permitting interval is very large. If I remember well, it's something like uh, 0 0.3, but Ola can correct me. if. Uh, so that was 30%. That was the probability that that constant would be created by chance, right? Yeah, it's actually uh, it's actually not zero point three. It's actually close to zero point seven. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's very it's very high. Yeah, I'm looking here at the paper and and I just uh, 
can correct myself. So the point is that actually what is happening with these uh, primordial fluctuations is that the life permitting interval is spreading through uh, several orders of magnitude. And that is producing that when we're looking at probabilities in the way we measure them, then the probability is high. So it's not going to be that finely tuned. That being said, it is important to notice that in our method, what we're finding is a maximum for that probability. So to put it in some formal terms, whenever we are finding that one constant is finely tuned, then we can be sure that it is finely tuned, but because the actual probability is going to be either that maximum or smaller. So the probabilities are the worst case. That's the worst possible case that it could be. Yes, yes, that's because we have been highly conservative in order to avoid false positives. Understood. So we are avoiding false positives, but the method is not that good in avoiding false negatives because it is a maximum again. So from that perspective, whenever we are finding a high probability with our method, it does not mean that it is not finely tuned. It means that the method cannot say anything definite in the end. I see. So it could be that the things that you found that were not fine-tuned could be fine-tuned, but from what we know and in accordance to the model you're using, they're not fine-tuned. Yes, exactly. Because as I said again, uh, this is a maximum. So if the maximum is, uh, is very small, then we know that the probability should be smaller than that maximum, and then it is finely tuned. But if the maximum is too high, then we don't know what is the real status. We've been talking about fine-tuning in the universe that allows life. There is no doubt the universe is fine-tuned to allow life, to allow you and me to exist. Everybody agrees, the scientists, the biologists, uh, and the chemist. Today, we talk about the cause of fine-tuning. Again, there's no controversy. But why is the universe finely tuned? You know, there are various theories of the cause of fine-tuning of the universe. Many are prompted by one's ideology. So let's go down the list of the ones that I have. And I think I've, I've done a good exhaustive search of the theories for fine-tuning. And the first one, Daniel, I'd like you to talk about is panspermia. We're fine-tuned because of panspermia. Okay, so uh, panspermia is the idea that life was seeded on Earth from the outer space. That's basically the idea. And then there is a particular uh, particularization of that idea that is called directed pans panspermia. It was, if I'm not mistaken, proposed by uh, Crick. Yes, the, Francis Crick. Francis yes. Crick, yeah, the co-discoverer of the structure of the DNA molecule. And a winner of a Nobel Prize, so he was a, he was no dummy. Yeah, exactly. So he proposed this idea of directed panspermia in order to explain how life started here on Earth. That is basically the idea. Panspermia is just the idea that life was seeded on Earth from the outer space, and then directed panspermia, as Francis Crick proposed it, it was the idea that it was seeded on Earth by an extraterrestrial civilization. That's really that's really strange. Uh, what's the difference between directed and regular panspermia? I think one was done on purpose, the other was accidental. Is that right? Yeah, so basically there was an extraterrestrial agent in directed panspermia seeding life here on Earth. 
And on the other side, it could be simply accidental that uh, life was sitting on Earth because it was coming from instant from an asteroid and the little uh, unicellular form of life started to develop until we uh, become to this point. You know, another person that was into and believed about panspermia was Fred Hoyle, who we've quoted, and Fred Hoyle definitely believed in a fine-tuned universe. I think that there's very little controversy that the universe is fine-tuned. There's always controversy, but I think that the uh, consensus is that the university was was fine-tuned. Isn't the idea of panspermia just kicking the can down the road? Are you familiar with that colloquialism? It's just... It's just um, kind of displacing the problem of where we came from to where did this incredible civilization come from that planted life here on Earth? Yeah, so let me just, uh, recently there was a debate, a conversation between Sabine Hosset uh, Fander, I think is the way to pronounce her last name. He, she's a very famous physicist with a, a well-known channel on YouTube. And uh, Luke Barnes, who has done extensive research on fine-tuning. And they were having this debate. And it is very interesting that they coincide that uh, explaining why there is fine-tuning is actually not a scientific question. So Luke Barnes said that basically science ends saying that there is fine-tuning. On explaining why there is fine-tuning, there might be different approaches and of course, then uh, different worldviews are going to produce different explanations for that fine-tuning that we're observing in nature. Interesting. Okay. So panspermia, I don't know. I think it just, it just again, kicks the can down the road. It leads the question as to the origin of this master race or master the master people that came here and planted life on earth. It's, it's just strange. One of the other theories of the origin of life on earth is something I only heard recently, maybe about five or six years ago, and it's called the Sims theory of fine tuning. Daniel, could you talk about the Sims theory of fine tuning? Yeah, we, we talked about it also before in one of the previous podcasts. I don't remember at this point which one. But uh, the idea of the simulation theory is that we are all part of a simulation. So the way to think about it is that, uh, well, the guy who developed this theory is uh, Nick Bostrom. He's a philosopher at Oxford University in England. And uh, when he came with this theory, he proposed that it is possible that we are living in a simulation. So this has to be thought just as in any computer problem, then uh, there is an algorithm and there was a super advanced civilization in the future that finally uh, made a computer simulation and we are all part of that simulation. Uh, I'm not saying that I agree with that position, but it is there and it has generated a lot of controversy. I know that for instance, Elon Musk is convinced of that theory and he says that we all live in a simulation, but it also has received a lot of pushback for many well-known uh, physicists. And so it's a very interesting development. Anyhow, the point with that simulation, if it is an algorithm whose outcome is that we are here, then again, it could be looked as fine-tuning in which there is this algorithm whose target is the civilization as we know it inside the simulation. 
And in that sense, then that target it needs to be uh, finely tuned. So fine tuning has been studied in that sense in the in the simulation hypothesis, more looked at from the perspective of the anthropic principle. You know, this also kind of kicks the can down the road, in my opinion. Um, we have to ask ourselves, again, where did the super race come from? And certainly their ability to write simulations about us uh, must come from some sort of fine-tuning. The other, the other objection I have is there's many things that people do that are non-algorithmic. In fact, this is one of the fundamental uh, postures of the Bradley Center, that we are not algorithmic, that we have, we have things which we do that you can't write a computer program to simulate. These include things like qualia, understanding, consciousness, creativity, and if we are indeed simulations, then whoever did this programming must know how to program non-algorithmic things into our being. And I just, I, man, I don't see how that can happen, at least from what I know, because all computers are limited and all simulations are limited to the algorithmic. Have you heard Elon Musk has, has hired uh, some people to go around and look for some flaws in our simulation? Yeah, some people are look have look at those things, but uh, let me just mention that I also do agree with your with your comments, what you're saying right now. But uh, in just playing as the devil's advocate here, in terms of the simulation uh, hypothesis, well, the 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 argument as it goes is that a post-human civilization is so technologically advanced that it is capable of simulating all that we are doing, even if it, uh, it doesn't look uh, algorithmic in, in some sense. So that's the hypothesis. So, uh, I mean, it has many, many, as I said, people who are uh, detractors and many people who do not agree with the position that, well, that's how the argument goes anyhow. It, it seems kind of silly to me if we talk about the Sims from uh, an advanced simulation that does does simulations of us. There's a couple of movies that I'm reminded of with the Sims theory. One, of course, is The Matrix. Yeah, <laughs> that's the default. <laughs> yeah, that's the default. That's where everybody goes to where, um, gosh, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Anyway, he work, he, he wakes up in a, in a big vat of primordial soup in which he has been basking, and his entire life has been simulated. So... That's one example of the Sims, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. Elon Musk looking around for little flaws in Sims really is strange. It reminds me of, of another movie called The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. Starring Jim Carrey, where he came out one time and all of his life, all of his existence was programmed in order to make it seem like he was... Uh, he was living in a real world. And then all of a sudden, this big lighting unit goes right in front of his house. And, you know, it came from the top where, where there was a simulation of a sky. And all of a sudden, Jim Carrey had this idea that, you know, maybe the reality that he perceived wasn't true. This reminds me of Elon Musk's uh, hiring of these people to go out and look for flaws in the Sims theory and see if, see if he can find any evidence for it. So anyway, it's, um, it's an interesting theory, I suppose. Well, let's move on to another theory. We've, we've covered panspermia, the Sims theory. Another theory of the reason that we are here 
is the anthropic principle. Ola, could you educate us about the anthropic principle? Yeah, uh, um, the word anthropic, that has to do with humans, the meaning of the word. And, and, and there are, it comes in two versions, the weak and strong anthropic principle. And uh, the strong anthropic principle was proposed by John Barrow and Frank Tipler in the late 80s. And it holds that the universe is constructed for life to exist and for humans to live and thrive within the universe. So, so in that sense, the strong anthropic principle is closely re related to uh, that our universe is fine-tuned for life to exist and for humans to live with it, but it sort of also adds an interpretation of it. It was so, uh, sort of a, almost like a purpose. But, it, but the other version, the weak anthropic principle, it also deals, deals with the fact that uh, the universe is fine-tuned for life to exist, but it says that as humans, we are sort of biased because we live in this, we live in a universe that harbors life. And for this reason, we are biased. So, and it's also called selection bias. So it's a sort of a criticism of the strong anthropic principle saying that, yes, if there was another universe without life, we would not be able to live in that universe and, and, and tell that it existed. So, so uh, according to the, to the weak anthropic principle, uh, we should not be surprised to live in a in a universe that harbors life so 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 they sort of these are sort of two different kinds of interpretation of fine-tuning of uh, the universe uh, or fine-tuning of the universe for life to exist but i should add that in our paper that we published recently and which we talked about during episodes one two and three the paper is Cosmological Tuning Final Course that was published in the Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. There we compute or give an upper bound for the probability of a randomly generated universe to have a certain constant of nature ending up within its life-permitting interval. And then we actually take the weak entropic principle into account and still we come up with small probabilities for certain constants of nature or certain ratios of constants of nature so 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 i think that is interesting so so even though this weak entropic principle in a sense is criticizes a strong entropic principle we are, we are able to come up with a small probability of ending up within the life permitting interval and still not violating the weak entropic principle okay you know the 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 one of the best counterexamples of the anthropic principle i heard from william lane craig i don't think he was a uh, the originator of the idea but it's very clear from the work that we've been talking about that the probability of our universe permitting life is very very small craig gives the example of a man dressed and ready for a firing squad he goes out his hands are bound his eyes are covered so he doesn't have to look at the firing squad, but in the firing squad, there are people which hate him. There are marksmen. There is one guy with a bazooka, and uh, they're all ready to take him out in this firing squad. So a big explosion happens, and there was a lot of smoke. But when the smoke clears, the guy was still standing there. His blindfold was gone. His hands weren't tied behind his back, and uh, you know everything was okay. He, he didn't have a scratch on him. 
So the anthropic principle would correspond to the guy that was in front of the firing squad shrugging his shoulders and saying, you know what? It happened. Uh, I don't know why it happened, but it, it did happen. I don't have to worry about that because I'm here and that's proof that it happened. Whereas I think in reality, if we had a small probability event like this, we would. Pro- if I was a guy in the front in front of the firing squad, I might dedicate maybe a portion of my life to finding out why the heck I wasn't shot. Why did mm. this low probability event happen? Mm. So I think it's intellectually bankrupt. The anthropic principle is intellectually bankrupt, and I see that this is shared by a number of physicists that yeah. they see this as an explanation that fits their ideology, but they're really not wild about the anthropic principle at all. Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. So if we apply, I think that example with the firing squad is, is a very nice one. I think if we apply the weak anthropic principle to everyday life, we should not be surprised by anything because we simply say, well, given that it's happened, it, it, it sort of happened, and and uh, I, I I cannot sort of say anything about the probability for it to ha- to happen or anything and and I think that's sort of a philosophy of life that is difficult to adhere to for anyone. Yeah, could we could we talk about the difference between the weak and strong anthropic principles? We were talking about movies. There's one of the first X Men movies where Doctor Xavier, who heads the school for special mutants gives a homework assignment. He says, your homework assignment is to go home and write an essay about the weak and strong anthropic principle. So the weak and strong anthropic principle has made it into the movies. What's the differentiation between the two? What makes the anthropic principle weak? What makes it strong? Yeah, I I, I think that if if we start with a strong anthropic principle, then it's really saying that it's almost like the universe was constructed for a purpose uh, for humans to exist and thrive within it because the probability for it happening by chance is so small. And, and, and then the weak entropic principle tries to weaken or explain away that first uh, explanation by saying, yes, but given that we exist here, we cannot say anything about other, and, any other possibilities. So, so we are bound to simply uh, accept that we live here. And, and it's like, we are not going to think about uh, the reason for this happening at all. Let me let me add one thing uh, about it, uh, and it is related also to your previous your previous questions about how did we measure the probability in our in our paper, and uh, basically uh, the idea was that was the idea behind taking the maximum of the probabilities over all the over the restrictions we are, were considering. So we are not considering only our universe but we are considering all the possible universe that could have existed under the restrictions that were assumed. And then, once we're doing that, we remove the possibility of the weak anthropic principle to appear in our measurement because we are not just looking at our universe again. We are looking over, we are taking like a, a general overlook over all of the possibilities. And then, once we're doing that, we select the maximum that's why uh, I mentioned before that we were going conservative in our in, in our in our approach, and then in that way we avoid the weak anthropic principle, and it has some strength in terms of the measurements because we don't want to uh, fall in the category of the selection bias measurement again. That is pretty common in in scientific developments, and the way to avoid it then 
was just to consider all the possibilities and then taking the maximum probability. So that's how we approach it in our paper. Okay, okay. Well, Daniel, continue about uh, another theory of why there is fine-tuning. We've talked about panspermia, the Sims theory, the weak and strong anthropic principle. And the one I'm hoping you will comment on, Daniel, is the multiverse. That's that's another explanation for why we are experiencing fine-tuning. Okay, uh, so yeah, the multiverse is this idea that there is not only one single universe, but that there are multiple uh, universes. And the theory, again, is uh, highly controversial because nobody can measure uh, what is happening outside our universe. Yeah, is there? That's a good question. I I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's any evidence at all for the existence of a multiverse. No, it is only uh, some theoretical developments that are based on the assumption I mean, it's basically assuming that there has to be other universes. So we have the multiverse uh, that produces that outcome. And uh, it's, it is an assumption. So what I mean in the end is that it is an assumption that is done and it is not a conclusion of science. It is not a conclusion of physics. And it is very interesting because most of the talk about multiverses started to appear once it was realized that there was fine tuning in nature. So, of course, as a metaphysical possibility, well, it's, yeah, it is a possibility, but it is highly biased by the uh, assumptions that people are making with respect to what is the cause of the fine tuning that we are observing. The problem, if you think about it, as I was saying before, is that we cannot know that there are external universes beyond ours. I mean, we, we cannot even look at our whole universe, you know, we can only see your universe to the point where light has traveled yet. And in our universe, that is what is called in physics the observable universe. So there is uh, theoretically a portion of our universe that we cannot observe. So my point is that even we cannot even look at our whole universe, let alone looking outside the universe. There's no way to do that. We could not even know how to measure that thing. Excellent. You know, I, I have to I have to brag about one of my publications or one of my pieces of analysis about the universe. A lot of people say uh, concerning the multiverse. I'm sorry, I said universe. Some people say regarding the multiverse that you know, in in some parallel universe, that this podcast would end right now. And in another universe, it would say that Daniel was in Miami as opposed to Columbia. Um, and they use the multiverse to say that anything can happen. Now, there's different there's different versions of the multiverse. One is from quantum theory, which says every time there's a quantum collapse that the universe is split. That's that's a weird interpretation. I'm kind of a Copenhagen man myself. But there's also the ones that where there are also the theories where these multiverses literally exist and um and i visualize them as being side by side okay and the the theories for multiverses are many but one of the most common one has about 10 to the thousandth universes in the multiverse and that sounds like a lot it does sound like there might be some place that um that that this podcast ends right now and there might be one where it doesn't end right now but if you look at the simple math behind it, it can't happen 
following on that, there's a universe where I am bald. I still am not totally bald. It's it's getting thin up there, but I'm not totally bald. So <laughs> how many universes would it be, require for me to be bald in one and not bald in the other? It would take two universes, right? Now we uh, talk about Ola. No offense, Ola, but in some universe, you might be bald too. Right? Yes, yes, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what happens and how many universes do we need for that? We need four, right? Yes. We need uh, bald, 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 not bald, not bald, bald, and, uh, and, and then the fourth one. So we, we have four. Now let's put Daniel, who has a rich crop of beautiful hair. Uh, but in some universe, Daniel, you're bald. How many universes would we need then? Eight. Yeah, we would need eight, right? So every time that we add a different contingency, we double the number of universes that are required. At least. Yeah, at least, yes. And we're only using binary counter-distinctions here also. We could have one where you're bald, not bald, and then maybe... um, you know, partially bald. We we could we could do three or four or five, and we would multiply it instead of by two. We would multiply it by five. But let's just stick with two. So you take um, each added counter distinction, and it doubles the number of universes. So you can work backwards by taking. If you're a nerd, you know that you take the log base two of the number of universes to get the number of counter distinctions. And anyway, if you go up to 10 to the thousandth, which is a common model, uh, one, of the, one of the models for the uh, existence of the multiverse is that we have 10 to the hundredth, 10 to the five hundredth, 10 to the thousandth. So I'm taking the worst case conditions. How many counter distinctions can you have? Well, if you take the log base two of that, you find out less than 4,000. There can only be 4,000 different things in these universes. So even though 10 to the thousandth sounds like a heck of a lot, there's not a lot of things you can do with only 10 to the thousandth parallel universes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's people that um, say, um, well, maybe we have an infinite number of universes. That is, that is pure speculative metaphysics. There's nothing in our universe that is infinite. Everything is finite. Everything. So your point is that as we're adding contingencies, the number of multiverses is exponentially uh, increasing. Exactly. It Mm -hmm. it increases exponentially. And uh, 10 to the thousandth isn't enough to do anything. So we've been covering different uh, theories of the multiverse. And I think the multiverse, in terms of probability, has been added for those that don't want to look to a creator as saying, well, you know, if we have a multiverse, then anything could happen. And I, I, I think that just careful analysis says that that isn't true. And also the fact that there is no evidence that there exists parallel universes, absolutely zero. So let's continue. We've been talking about the reasons for fine-tuning, panspermia, the Sims theory, the anthropic principle. We've just covered the multiverse. And so let's now go to the deist creator interpretation, which I would say that is embraced by Christianity, Judaism, Muslim, and many other religions. What is the deist creator interpretation of the fine-tuning of the universe? Um, I think uh, uh, previously we have defined uh, that uh, something is fine-tuned if it's unlikely to occur by chance and if it has a sort of an independent characterization and in, in terms of the universe, that is, that the universe harbors life. If now, it's very unlikely that, for instance, such a universe 
came to existence by chance, then it's sort of very natural to think about other causes of the universe. And since we also have now, for something to be fine-tuned, it has to have an independent specification or characterization. Often it's a case that this characterization brings us or comes us to think about a creative mind. Uh, because in, in terms of the universe, it's that this universe should harbor life. We, when we talked about biology, it's, a, it's that a, a protein should function, or when we talked about uh, molecular machines, it was the same thing, it should function. Or, uh, and and uh, all this independent characterization that is part of the fine-tuning brings us or uh, tells us that probably there is a creative mind behind, or that's a very good hypothesis. It's like when we look at a painting, and see features that we can recognize. Just as we sort of, when we look at life and see all the features of life, it's things that uh, sort of brings our thoughts towards a creative mind. For that reason, I would say that fine tuning naturally leads to a theistic interpretation. And uh, earlier this, uh, during this episode, we talked about fine tuning is something we observe and, and that's unco quite uncontroversial when it comes to cosmology, but now we talk about the interpretation of fine-tuning. And, 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 and then the theistic interpretation is, is quite natural because of the way we define fine-tuning. So the, the, the creator of this is a creative mind, and so I think a lot of people would say, okay, you're talking about God, which I think we are, right? Yes, yes, certainly, yes. And it, it's very interesting about how the fine-tuning of the universe has brought people to a belief in God. One of them, which is kind of a poster boy, is Anthony Flew, who wrote in 1976, The Presumption of Atheism. Gosh, who was it? I think it was Walter Bradley was telling me, boy, he sure wishes that Anthony Flew had become a deist before he became a deist. That would save him from reading a lot of uh, Anthony Flew's <laughs> defense of atheism, but you know, it didn't happen. So he had to read a lot of Anthony Flew's work on, on the defense of atheism. So I want to get to the, uh, now to, to the last topic that I want to talk about. You know, I, I think panspermia is silly. I think Sims theory is silly, but for every one of these that I think is silly, there are people out there that would argue and debate me and say that they're not silly. And many times this comes down to a personal belief that everybody has. And so we're going to put aside the physics and talk about what our personal beliefs are. And let's go ahead and start with Daniel. What do you think is the cause of all this fine-tuning that we see in the universe? Okay, so uh, just trying to go a little uh, technical in the philosophy here, just, just let me make a differentiation between deist and theist. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, uh, it, is, it is an important point to make because actually uh, the deist believes that there is a God, but that the world is created in such a way that God is not interacting with it in any way. Really? I always thought that the theist was a subset of deist, but I'm getting uh, corrected here. Is that right? So uh, the theist is, or the the or theism is the position that there is a God and he interacts with the universe he created. So there is a kind of a differentiation between the two. Deism was actually championed uh, by, by Luc de Spinoza and it influenced the, 
Einstein's thinking a lot. Actually, that's who, who was it influenced by? Baruch de Spinoza. He was a very famous philosopher in Europe in, I think it was the 1800s, but I might be mistaken in the, in the date. But the point is that he defended a universe. So this is very interesting. The guy was a believer in God. Of course, that's why he proposed that there was God, but he did not interest. But he created that he thought that God had created a world that was so perfect that did not need any intervention. Uh, so it is a very, very mechanistic way of thinking of the world. And that was something that Einstein absorbed a lot. And that is the reason for Einstein's to reject the uh, to reject quantum physics with its uh, Copenhagen interpretation. That's where the famous sentence of Einstein came about uh, uh, God does not play dice. Yes. Uh, because he was thinking that if God were playing dice, then he would be interacting with nature, with the world that God created. So for Einstein, that was unthinkable. Anyhow, that's the deist position. The theist position is to believe that there is a God and that he interacts with the universe that he created. So I am a Christian. And that's basically the position, I suppose. That's what I think happened. That's, uh, according to my worldview, the more uh, the, the best explanation for, for fine-tuning. I think that there was a God, and that there is a God, actually, who created the world, and uh, that we can see evidence of that in fine-tuning. Okay. Ola? What do you think? Yes, I yes, I totally agree with Daniel, and and I, I'm also Christian, and uh, for for therefore for me it's natural to associate or explain a fine-tuned structure such as the university existing with life within it to sort of interpret that as the universe was created by God, and uh, also He had a purpose for creating that universe, uh, and. Uh, that purpose was for humans to live in the universe and thrive within it and have a relationship with God. So, so, so I sort of connect this interp- interpretation with reading the Bible, and uh, and uh, so uh, and the Bible also says that we as humans have sort of um, he, we have a big responsibility in taking care of of our planet, the Earth, and uh, mm-hmm. and. And, and that naturally leads us to the anthropic principle, that uh, the strong anthropic principle that God created the world, the universe and our planet in a way that is sort of optimized for us humans. And uh, so, and that's simply, that's because, in my interpretation, that's because of his love for us. And, and I think that his, his love is most strongly revealed in his sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, so that anyone who believes in Jesus and commits his life to Jesus will have eternal life. And personally, I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 22, 23 years old, and that has been the best decision of my life. And that is sort of my sort of interpretation of fine-tuning. It's really God is a creator of everything for the purpose that he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us, and he wants also to be surrounded by a nature and a cosmos that is sort of functioning well and that is also uh, aesthetically pleasing. Excellent. Thank, thank you, Ola. I am with you. I, I, I am also a follower of Christ. I would say even more fundamental, I'm kind of a John 3.16 kind of Christian. 
And I, I became a Christian about the same age that you did, Ola, about as 22 years old as a junior in college. And nothing makes sense. One of the, nothing made sense. And then I, I came to Christ and all of a sudden everything made sense. And it was just, it was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience that's difficult to communicate to people. So, yep, I'm, I, I, I'm with you. One of the things that happens is I think that people become Christians by their faith. But one of the, one of the things, especially people like us, we are intellectually gifted. That's been gifts that God has given to us. We are all three if you'll excuse the expression, kind of nerds, if you will. And uh, and the beautiful part about being a Christian is that all of these things that we look at are intellectually stimulating and, and provide evidence for the faith. And I have always find that just to be wonderful. I've always looked at the Christian well, kind of a version which, which talks about God's creation and the, the purpose of God's creation in our existence. And this is Romans 1.20. It says, for, the, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Louis Pasteur famously said, you know, the more I look into the science, the more I see God. That certainly is true with all of this fine-tuning stuff that we've talked about. The more I look into it, the deeper I understand it, the more I see God's hand in it. And it's just been wonderfully intellectually satisfying in, in our times and our discussions together. Great. Any final words? Yeah, I just want to mention another thing, Bob, and it is that all the other uh, quotation competing explanations to the uh, theist interpretation that God is the source of the fine-tuning are actually not uh, totally opposed to it. So, for instance, in the in the simulation hypothesis, it is perfectly possible to think that the programmer was God. Yeah, you know, I've thought about that too. I've thought about that too. He kind of wrote us and created us with his word, and he, we're, we're, we're simulations of God in some sense. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying I, I'm I'm not saying that that's my interpretation, but then that is a possibility if we are considering the simulation hypothesis. Uh, on the other side, for instance, with the weak anthropic principle, the fact that the observation is biased does not mean necessarily that it is incorrect. So uh, that happens with the, with the weak anthropic principle. With the strong anthropic principle that says, actually adds the interpretation and says that the universe was uh, made so that he, it could uh, host life. Well, it's basically kind of going into a deistic at least or even a theistic interpretation. So so none of those things in the end are necessarily opposed. It's just a particular version of those points that would be uh, opposing to the theistic version of the or the theistic argument as the source of the fine-tuning. So that's very interesting because not even the arguments that have been placed in order to counter it necessarily uh, counter uh, the theistic interpretation of the fine-tuning. You know, one of the things um, Stephen Hawking wonderfully said that nothing is proven in physics, that you only accumulate evidence. I think accumulation of evidence is also important for these interpretations of fine-tuning. There is no evidence for panspermia, directed or otherwise. There's no evidence for Sims theory, although we've heard 
stories. I don't know if they're urban myths, but we have heard stories about Elon Musk looking for holes in the theory oh, yeah. of fine tuning. There is no evidence of the strong and weak anthropic principle. It is totally philosophical. There is no evidence about the universe, but there is evidence accumulating that maybe God Almighty was the creator of the universe. And with abductive reasoning, that's that kind of leads me to the biblical account of, of creation as the correct one. Yes. So uh, it's the o- it's the only one to me that makes sense. Yeah, it's in the end. To me, it's the same thing. Okay, this has been great. Look, we've been talking about fine-tuning in our universe, and not only in our universe, but in biology, with Dr. Daniel Diaz from the University of Miami and Dr. Ola Hersher from Stockholm University. It has been a great chat. We've covered a lot of material, and I've learned a lot. So I hope you've enjoyed it, too. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.